14, verses 3 through 27. If you're in the Pew Bible, that's uh, on page 849. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is rich. Your word is full. And uh, God, we need it. We, we need to hear from it. We need to see you, Jesus. So we pray that that would happen today. We pray that you would bless Mike to, um, to teach well, to, to speak what you would have spoken to us. And we pray, God, that we would have hearts to receive. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So Mark 13, 3 through 27. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
say that one more time. The bullet exploded from the gun's barrel, spiraling through cool night air toward a gray SUV's back passenger side window. Carter uh, Quiss Hill was perched in his car seat on the other side of the glass as it shattered all around him. The round burrowed into his head an inch above the right temple. From the boy's hand slipped a bright red plastic Spider-Man mask he'd gotten for his fourth birthday nine days earlier. A white Pontiac blew past, disappearing into the distance. Uh, Carter's uh, mother, Cecilia Hill, knew it was the same car that had been chasing them for three miles before someone inside fired eight shots at her 2004 Volkswagen in what police would call an extraordinary act of road rage. This was in Cleveland. Now she shoved her foot against the brake, squealing to a stop in the middle of Interstate 90. In the back seat, her son and daughter snapped forward against their taut seat belts. Carter's seven-year-old sister, Dehaila Bowles, looked over at him. Shards of glass speckled her hair, but she didn't notice them at first. Mommy, Quiss got blood on his head, the second grader said. Then she reached over and began to wipe it away. Stop, Hill screamed, turning to check on her son. For Carter, his mother feared it might already be too late. The bullet had driven through her boy's skull, and emerged from a hole in the center of his forehead. Blood trickled down over his eyes, along his nose, into his mouth. Mommy, mommy, he'd been shouting minutes earlier, as Hill had fled from the shooter. But now her irrepressible 36-pound preschooler with his plum cheeks, button nose, and deeply curious brown eyes was silent. He stared at her. She faced forward and punched the gas, pushing the speedometer past 100 miles per hour. Hill veered off an exit, stopped, and leapt out of the car. She rushed to the other side, unbuckled her son, and she wrapped him in both arms, collapsed to her knees. Help! He heard her yell into the night, over and over, help! Until a passing driver pulled up and called 911. Please don't let my son die, prayed Hill, the 27-year-old housekeeper at a medical clinic who had raised her kids mostly alone. She squeezed Carter against her chest. This article goes on and on. It was in the Washington Post just a few days ago on the front page. Uh, these images and the, what, what I just read is from this article by John Woodrow Cox. And I share it with you this morning. The, the, the article goes on to describe of this incredible surgery, and that the boy was okay. But I share this terrible event with you this morning to remind us of something that we don't have to look far to be reminded of, and that is we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is not operating the way that it ought to operate. When four-year-olds sitting in their car seats are struck with a bullet into their head. And the article tells story after story like that. 
we know that we are in a broken world that is in desperate need of redemption and of change. Things are not now the way that God intended them. The good news is that one day this world is going to be redeemed. And children are no longer going to be struck by a bullet while they're sitting in their car seat playing with a Spider-Man mask. There's a time coming where doctors will no longer have those dreaded conversations where they have to schedule a meeting and look someone in the eyes and say, uh, there is nothing more we can do for you. The cancer has metastasized. It is throughout your body. There is nothing else to do. There is coming a day when these kinds of things will be no more. They will be gone. And so today, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to focus on one of the things that God's Word calls us to, and how are we to live, and how are we to respond in the midst of of brokenness, in the midst of pain and suffering in a world that is is going in a way that it, it ought not to. How are we to respond? How are we to fight this battle? There are a lot of answers to that question, but one of the answers to that question is that we are to fight this battle with our theology of the end. The the scriptures specifically link the the events that are coming, the return of Christ, our eschatology, if you will, with hope for today in this broken world. We're going to get to the passage that was just read in a few moments, but I want to introduce it by looking at what is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. It is sometimes referred to as the rapture or the blessed hope. If we want to use the language of Scripture, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. But in Titus 2.13, there is this event that is coming that is called the blessed hope. And we read about it, the, the greatest detail of it, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Paul there writes, and he says, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, about those believers in Christ who have died. We don't want you to be ignorant about them or to grieve like the rest of men. The the church at Thessalonica was grieving because people were dying, and they are expecting Christ's return. And it's okay to grieve, but you've got to grieve with hope. And so where does Paul go when people are suffering and they are grieving and they need hope? He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He goes to the end times. He goes to eschatology. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. There's going to be a reunion. The brokenness, whether it's from violence, from cancer, or from death, it is going to end, and Christ is coming back. Paul goes on, he says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he is describing here those who are going to be alive at the very end, those who are left till his coming. And the coming we are referring to here. And my reading of the New Testament is not the second coming of Christ, but something that precedes that where we are going to be caught up in the air with him, known as the blessed hope or the rapture. 
He goes on and he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be this resurrection. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. It's that last sentence that has really been resonating in my heart and mind this week as I have been studying and praying over this. And I, even this morning in our prayer time right before the service, I, I shared, man, I, I'm, I had my time of confession already because guess what? I rarely encourage other believers with these words, with this theology that Christ is coming back. I rarely do that when people are grieving. We are called here to encourage one another with these words about the end so that we can make it through this broken world, whatever we are dealing with. One commentator uh, writes this. Uh, he says, uh, Christ can return for his church at any moment and that no predicted event will intervene before that return. He's referring to the blessed hope here or this rapture that I just read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is referred to as the doctrine of imminence and the doctrine of imminence basically just says what is here on the screen and that is that at any moment this could happen. That there is nothing left in God's prophetic calendar that has to take place before this event. So we live in, in this, with this theology of imminence that, that, that this could happen at any moment and we are to encourage one another with these words. One more passage before we get to Mark 13. One more introductory passage where Jesus is speaking of the end in John chapter 14. He says this to the apostles and by extension to us in John 14. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. We, we live in a broken world and our, and our, our lives can be so troubled. Uh, we don't need a newspaper to know this. I mean, unfortunately, I could tell you story after story of just pain and trouble. Even this week, talking with someone who's... who's children and uh, children who, who have suffered abuse and just terrible things in this world that is broken. But Christ says the good news of the gospel, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back here again. Eschatology, the return of Christ, he's coming. I will come back and take you to be with me. This is the doctrine of imminence I'm suggesting here. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, that blessed hope, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. The way to the place where he is going is through Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life, and the gospel message is the way. Now, this passage is, is a pretty familiar one, and we have songs about it, and I've had thoughts about it, um, especially this part, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I, I, how many of you, this is kind of a, a precious thought or passage? It, it, Okay, so I might mess with you a little bit here, okay? Because it is a precious passage, not that it's not precious, but I've always understood this because of the songs that we sing and a variety of things, that in some mysterious way that Christ 
is now somehow preparing the rooms of the mansion for us. But one, one commentator that I read this week had a new take on this, and as I read it, I thought, oh, I think that is right. And what he said, I'll show you what he said in just a moment, but it has to do with this word there, where he says, I would have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you. I have always thought until this week that that there is, is heaven, and he's, and he's rearranging and decorating all the, all the rooms and getting ready. How, how many of you are with me on that? I mean, that's, that's what I always thought. So this commentator I'm reading this week says, there isn't heaven. He's not rearranging the furniture or getting, you know, um, uh, what's that place called? Ethan Allen. He's not getting them to come and and, and set everything up. Uh, There is the cross. I am going to the cross and to to the resurrection, to Calvary. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die and be raised. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you back. So this is a prophecy at this point, right? They're, the disciples are, don't want him to leave. That's why they're troubled. And he's saying, he's prophesying, I'm going to go and suffer and die. And if I go and do that, guess what? Just as certain as that happens, I'm coming back to take you with me. Commentator was uh, D.A. Carson. He puts it this way. He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, quoting it. The words priest supposes that the place exists before Jesus gets there. It is not that he arrives on the scene and then begins to prepare the place. Rather, in the context of Johannine theology, John's theology, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. He goes on, the point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his Father's home. We are talking this morning about the return of Christ in this second message out of the Olivet Discourse. Everything I've done so far is just preliminary to get us to where we are in Mark chapter 13. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open there. We're going to turn our attention to Mark 13. For those of you that weren't here last week, just a quick summary of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus makes a prophecy in verse 2 that the temple is going to be destroyed. This incredible building, this grandiose piece of architecture that is also the centerpiece of the life of ancient Israel and the people of God. And he prophesies that it's going to be destroyed. That prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70, a few decades after Jesus said this, as the Roman general Titus came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who are sitting with him on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple as this is going on, they understood him when he said this building is going to be destroyed. They understood that to be the end of time. There's no way this building's going away except for at the end, at the return, at the very end. And so they ask him in verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? They want to know when and they want to know what the signs are. And now for those of you that weren't here last week, we looked last week that Jesus up through verse 13 doesn't really say anything about signs and doesn't say anything about when this is going to happen. What he says is there's going to be many false Christs coming. Beware of them. What he says is the gospel must first go to the nations. Spread the gospel. 
What he says is there's going to be wars and rumors of wars in various places, and this is just the beginning of birth pains. He seems to be hinting that it's a ways off to me in verse 8. Then he says to be on their guard, and he says there's going to be all of these trials and tribulations, including in families, where brother and, and sister and mother and father are going to be divided because of the gospel. So he says all of that. Now we come to the second part of the Olivet Discourse today, beginning at verse 14. And he shifts gears here at verse 14. So let's, let's look at verses 14 through 19 together. It says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So Jesus, I'm suggesting, is shifting gears in this Olivet Discourse, in this response to the question, when and what are the signs? He's shifting gear. Up until this point, he's simply been encouraging them to make it through these trials. And now he begins to talk not about dates or about signs, but he does begin to talk about a chronology of the end, of how it's going to play out at the end. And we... We, a key to interpreting this section of Scripture is verse 19. Look at it again with me. He says there that these days are going to be unequaled from the beginning, from when God created the world. Now, there have been a lot of hard times since the creation of the world. There was this flood thing. You guys remember that? I mean, there were some bad times, okay? Really bad times. But he is describing a time now that is worse in severity and unequaled in its severity in all of history, something that is yet future. So I want to suggest that what he's talking about here is what Daniel describes as a seven-year tribulation, the great tribulation. One commentator writes this. He says, the tribulation will not be confined to Judea and will be on a scale unprecedented since the beginning of the creation. So in this section, he is referring to this event that was prophesied in uh, the book of Daniel and was aware of, this, this tribulation that is coming was aware of, of, of by, God's, by God's people. So what we see in verses 14 through 19 is that this seven-year tribulation and its, uh, and its unequaled severity, this is what we're seeing in verses 14 through 19. Now, this, this, is, this is crazy stuff. Are you guys with me so far today? Are you guys sleeping? You awake? You're awake. Okay. So this is crazy stuff here. But here we go. Um, back up to verse 14. He says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. So this little phrase, let the reader understand, is kind of like a cue, I believe. What he's saying is that this is a cue that I've shifted gears here. And, and, and I've shifted gears, and we're talking about the future, and this is going to take some thoughtfulness on your part to know what I'm even talking about here, whether you were an apostle in the first century or whether you're reading this in 2017. Now, if you were an apostle or a Christian in the first century reading this or hearing this, 
in verse 14, when he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, something immediately comes to your mind. And what would have come to your mind was the prophecy of this in Daniel chapter 9. It says there, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And this word seven is, I believe, referring to the seven years to the great tribulation. But it's referring, in a sense, to more than that. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So a first century reader of Mark chapter 13 would hear this language, Jesus teaching about the abomination of desolation. They would think about this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and they would have thought that this prophecy has already been fulfilled. One commentator writes this. He says, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a Greek general, uh, desecrated the temple in 168 BC. This guy came in, and he erected a small altar dedicated to Zeus over the altar of burnt offering. So he went into the temple, the Holy of Holies. He erects this altar upon which he sacrificed a swine and made the practice of Judaism a capital offense. It was natural to find a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in his action. I told you this is crazy stuff here. You're ready for this this morning, right? Is this what you woke up for? We're going to hear about the abomination of Daniel, uh, desolation and Daniel's prophecy. So... In the first, the first century reader, when Jesus says this, is thinking, this has already been fulfilled. This has already happened. This is history from their perspective. This guy, Antiochus, came in, and he desecrated the temple, and so that worship and sacrifice and the Mosaic system as prescribed, it stopped. It was desecrated. It was destroyed. It stopped. So what I'm suggesting that Jesus is saying, and I'm, of course, I'm not alone with this. I didn't come up with this. What I'm suggesting, what Jesus is saying, is all of that was a pointer. All of that was a pointer to something else that is still yet to happen, another abomination of desolation. How do I go backwards on this thing? Am I going backwards? Yes. So, what we have here in Daniel 9.27, I'm suggesting is multiple fulfillment of prophecy. So, Antiochus was an antichrist, if you will, who went into the temple, who did this terrible thing and ceased temple worship and stuff to go on. He was an abomination of desolation, but he wasn't the antichrist. He was a pointer to one that is still coming, and there is a time coming that is going to be worse. And so this passage is about the antichrist that is still future from our perspective, who is going to break this covenant that was made with the Jews in the middle of the tribulation and put an end to sacrifice and offering, presumably in a temple that has been rebuilt. You tracking with me? Okay. So this is what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 13. He is saying that this tribulation is still future. It is unequaled in its severity and We need to be ready for his return. We don't know when this is going to be. We've already looked at that. All right, so let's come back to our text now. We've looked at verses 14 through 19. Let's move on and look at verses 20 through 23. 
It says, if the Lord, uh, Jesus is speaking here again in response to their question, when is this happening and what are the signs? If the Lord has not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, that is, those who are true followers of God, for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So this passage is saying that false messiahs are going to continue during the tribulation. We have false messiahs going on now, and they've been going on sometime. There's people that show up all over the place. In fact, I was just... I haven't read the article yet, but I guess there was an article in National Geographic just recently about these different messiahs. Anybody? I know at least one of you have seen that. Can I see a hand from you? Are you awake? You saw that. Anybody else see that? National Geographic? I didn't see that. But there's an article in a recent National Geographic issue about false messiahs. And what Jesus is saying here is that during the tribulation, false messiahs are going to continue during that time. And they are going to do great and fantastic miracles. And you're going to be wondering, is that is that the Messiah or is that the one? Is this, sh- should we follow this person? And these, this passage is a warning for those who are believers, who will become believers, I think, during the tribulation, and they are going to have the scriptures telling them not to uh, follow these false messiahs, and they are going to continue. This is what we see in verses 20 through 23. Let's continue on. We're just going through verse 27 today. So let's look at 24 through 27. But in those days... Following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see, men and women, boys and girls, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. We have in verse 26... Not the blessed hope or not the rapture being described, but after this tribulation, the return of Christ. The Son of Man is going to come. Now notice how it's described. The sun is darkened. The moon won't give its light. The heavenly bodies, there's going to be celestial earthquakes. And the Son of Man is going to come in the clouds. So the key thing here that we're seeing is that the Un, this, the, verses 24 through 27 describe the unmistakably cosmic nature of the second coming. And if this is the advent we've been longing for. The people of God have been longing for the Messiah to come to make things right in this broken world. And when he came the first time, he came to deal with the problem of sin. But when he comes the second time, he is going to end sin. And that is the the coming that we still long for and that we are praying for. And it is of an unmistakably cosmic nature. There's not going to be any confusion. Oh, is that that Jesus? Is that Messiah? It, It is going to be seen by all. He's going to come in the clouds. There's going to be celestial earthquakes. It's going to be crazy when this happens. And this is a crazy passage, isn't it? It's beautiful, but it's crazy. I, I haven't. I, I was just saying to people this morning in the before we prayed, right before we came in here. I, I haven't preached a passage on eschatology like this since I've 
I've been at Cornerstone, so I just haven't been in a text like this for a while. So what I want to do now in just our, our last few minutes is I want to talk about the practicality of this. I want to talk about uh, the beauty of the second coming. And again, in my heart and mind is that, is that phrase in 1 Thessalonians 4, for us to encourage one another with these words. And I take that to mean literally those words in 1 Thessalonians 4, but more broadly, that we encourage one another with the hope of Christ's coming so that we can make it through the stuff that we are dealing with today. So the beauty of the second coming, four things I want to say about it. I've already been saying this, that it gives us us hope for today. Uh, again, they're, 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 we, we don't need the, the Washington Post to tell us that our world is broken in, in, these, in the story that, that is in there that was so gripping as I read it this week. We don't need, um, to, we don't need any aids to know that our world is broken, but we desperately need hope. We have that hope in Jesus, in the gospel, and we have it in a part of our understanding of Christ and that he is coming back. And I'm just saying this morning, at least I'm preaching to myself this morning, that I think we've neglected this theology of the end as a ministry to encourage one another in faith and that he's coming and he's going to make this broken world right. One of the reasons, I mentioned this last week too, I'm so excited about um, our church being part of the Evangelical Free Church of America is that when terrible things happen, uh, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, that the Free Church mobilizes. And, and we see this as an opportunity to redeem and to take the gospel and to display the gospel to difficult places and to bring hope for today, to bring the message of the, of the first advent and of the second advent of, of Christ to bring this in tangible ways and to display it. So we're going to be sending, we've, we've sent short-term, tree, uh, short-term trees, short-term teams in the past after Katrina uh, to New Orleans. And we're going to be sending a short-term team also to Houston, Lord willing, at spring break. Jake's going to have more to say about that um, at the end of the service. But part of what we are to encourage one another with, our brothers and sisters in Houston or in Florida or on those Caribbean islands, our brothers and sisters there, part of what they are to encourage each other with is the fact that Christ is coming back and is going to restore all things, and he's going to fix this broken world. A second thing, I have just four of these, we're almost done. The beauty of the end, or the, the relevance of, of eschatology here. A second thing is the unassailability of Christ. The unassailability of Christ. What do I mean by that? You know, my son, my younger son started high school this year. In the first few days of high school, he came home. And I don't remember his exact words, but to summarize what, what, what he was saying, he was basically saying, like, nobody there really follows Jesus. He had been in these smaller environments, in a Christian environment, and, and it was just totally evident that, that the teachers and the students and everyone are, are following Jesus. And now he's, he's at this big school, this, this big public high school, and he, and he comes home and just says, you know, like, Jesus isn't there. Even those that are Christians, I don't really see them following him. Now, now part of that is his eyes probably weren't opened, right? But uh, another part of that is that in our world and in our culture, and in our secular, Jesus is ignored. He's marginalized. I mean, not just on our high school campuses, but in our movies and in our books. And Jesus and the church are irrelevant. 
He's just pushed aside as though this doesn't even exist. As we develop a robust theology of the end, we will see that there is coming a time where that is no longer going to be possible. You are not going to be able to ignore Jesus once these events happen, once we are caught up in the air with him and this tribulation happens and then he returns. It is going to be evident to all. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. And so we have hope in his return and the unassailability of Christ. Now this, um, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a, a chart here of, of what's going on in the framework that we have. Now I said last week, and I kind of poked fun of charts, and here I've got one this week, so you can make fun of me afterward. But what I was trying to get at last week is we have no idea where we are in my understanding of things as I read the scriptures of where we are. On this chart, I have the cross. The first coming is on the left, and we are in this church age. And the next thing that's going to happen is this blessed hope or this rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And what I'm saying is, in in response to this question in Mark 13, when are these things going to happen? Jesus doesn't say anything other than this is just the beginning. He doesn't say anything. So I don't know whether we are like right up to the edge of the rapture and it could happen today or next week, or whether we're way back toward the first coming and we're just in the beginning, I don't know. And I don't think the scriptures tell us. This is a debated area and a controversial area, so I'm sure I'll talk with some of you afterwards and you can tell me your thoughts on this. But I, th- I don't think we know where we are. But we have this hope that he's coming back. And we do have a clear description in Mark 13 that there's coming a time that is worse in severity than anything has happened in the history of the world, and that is still future. And in the middle of that time is when this covenant is going to be broken and the abomination of desolation, which Jesus refers to in Mark 13 and more clearly refers to in Daniel 9, this is going to happen in the middle of this tribulation. The, the, at the end of that tribulation is when the seven years are coming. So one of the issues that comes up, and my son asked me last week after the service, well, is there going to be a, a temple then, Dad? And many people think, yes, the temple is going to be rebuilt if there's going to actually be an abomin- abomination of desolation that's going to come in. And, and in that case, that temple in Jerusalem would have to exist before the middle of the tribulation for this to happen if all of this is literal, which is the way that I'm taking it. I threw this photo up here. Uh, This is a photo I took when I was in Jerusalem uh, a a little over a decade ago. And there is a group of people there uh, that I think they're a minority. They're not a popular group or a really well-known group. But there's a group of people there that are planning to rebuild the temple. And that you can go into their offices and they actually have like... uh, Investments and artifacts and things they've already built to the specifications of the Torah. And you can, has anybody gone in there and seen this stuff? You can go in there and see, some of you have. So you can go in there and you can see these things that they're saying are going to be in the temple when it gets rebuilt. And by the way, they're taking offerings if you need, if you want to help them to get the temple built. Now, I don't think the temple is going to be built anytime soon. I don't know the future. It could be, but I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that. I don't want to make too much of stuff like this, right? Like I've kind of poked fun of like looking at what's going on and connecting the dots. I have no idea where we are. But there are people in Israel who are longing for and planning for this temple to be rebuilt. So my understanding of what the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches about prophecy is that we're somewhere in that church age. The rapture is to come. 
Mark 13 is described as seven years of, of severe trials that are still yet future. Then Christ is going to return, and we're going to have this thousand years on earth before the resurrection of unbelievers and judgment in the new heavens and the new, new earth having. We're going to have a thousand years on this earth where things are not going to be broken and things are going to be completely restored. We read about this in the Bible in a variety of places. Let me read one of them to you before we get there. So third point, brokenness transformed into beauty. Just kind of summarizing eschatology here and what we're talking about today. It is hope for today. In the future, the unassailability of Christ. He's not going to be able to be ignored. Jesus is not going to be able to just be a cuss word and you just move on your life and ignore him. That's not going to be the case once these things start to unfold. And brokenness that we experience in our lives is going to be transformed to beauty. Here's the passage that I was looking for describing either the millennium and or the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah chapter 11, and there are many passages like this in Scripture. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh. And the, and the waters, as the waters covered the sea. Again, this last verse here. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, of Yahweh. We live in a time where many people just ignore him and and deny him and don't believe him and they seem to be doing okay, but there's going to be a time where the entire earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. This, I believe, is describing this millennial period as well as the new heavens and the new earth. And of course, the question comes up, well, is this like all of these things, the question comes up, is this literal? Are are we literally going to have an infinite playing near the hole of the cobra because the cobra doesn't have poison. I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter whether it's literal or not. What is th- this is either a metaphor for how glorious it's going to be or it's actually going to be like this, and either way, it's awesome. Are you with me? Either way, it's awesome. We're just about done here. We're trying to wrap up hope for today, unassailability of Christ, brokenness transformed to beauty. And the last thing I want to say, these words to encourage one another with is that we are going to have government by a divine king. We, many of us, are are really proud of our country, and we love our country. But the reality is our country, the forefathers of our country, understood what sinners Americans are, along with the French and Chinese and everyone else. We are sinners. And so they set up our government with these three systems, these three separations of power, this division of power, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch. Because they know that if any one of these branches gets all this power, the other two will stop what they're doing. It's like a, you know, like a, like a threshold for sin and messing things up. We have this separation of powers because our government is full of sinful people like me and like you. And so it's a good system. But the good news is that when Christ comes back, we are not going to have that separation of powers. We're not going to have a democratic society. We are going to have a divine king who loves us and who's all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing. And he is going to rule 
for a thousand years on this earth, according to Revelation 20, and then forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And you and I are called to encourage one another with these words, with this truth. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to do that. Father in heaven, once again, I'm confessing to you my own neglect of what your word teaches about the end. Lord, it is decidedly and intentionally practical to give us hope. Lord, we uh, pray for this boy who I mentioned at the very beginning of this sermon who was hit in the head with a bullet sitting in his car seat. We thank you for the surgery and that he's alive and well today. But we pray for him and for us and for our neighbors and colleagues and classmates who know that this world is broken, that we would have the hope of Jesus Christ, both his first coming, his death, his resurrection, and that we would have the hope of his second coming. And we pray with the Apostle John that he would come soon and that this broken world would be reordered. We look forward to the day, God, when hurricanes and cancer and bullets hitting children cease and a child can play near the hole of a cobra. We look forward to that and we pray, Lord Jesus, come soon.